This message by Zach Varnell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Zach serves as a pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Acts chapter 14. If you need a Bible, uh, raise your hand. I'd love to get a Bible to you. But we are back in Acts and very excited about it. The gospel is going forth in this book, just like Jesus said it would in chapter 1. And in chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are commissioned by their church in Antioch to embark on this first formalized missionary journey, taking the gospel to the end of the earth. Verse 49 in chapter 13 says, The the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region and all the places where they had traveled. It's incredible. It's a a faith-building event that's going on. And yet, as their witness grew and the number of believers grew, so did the opposition that they faced. By the end of chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are actually chased out of town. But you know what? They don't stop. And I I think through our text today, what I think the Lord wants to do in our lives this morning is strengthen our souls So that we'd be able, just like them, to persevere. That we'd continue in the faith uh, and in our witness. Not just because of the examples, the incredible example of these apostles, but because of the Lord who's in control of it all. So, Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word to us. Now... At Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, And to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments 
and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Verse 24. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Ataliah. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived... And gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them. And how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Come what may. Come opposition. Come Division, come tribulation, God's kingdom will not fail. And you know what that enables us to do? Just that truth, what it enables us to do is persevere. I think the main point of our text this morning is to continue in the faith. Continue in the faith for God will build his kingdom. In the 1970s, the U.S. Army recognized a growing need for a special forces group designated to counter terrorism. A number of incidents were, were on the rise. And it, it would need to be a group of highly trained, deeply devoted, and caref very carefully selected individuals to do just what needed to be done. It was important work. It was the first counterterrorism group of its kind. It was called Delta Force. When it was created, 163 top-ranking soldiers uh, began the selection process. Only 12 made it through. One of those was Eric Haney, 
who wrote a book about the whole thing. They were drilled and tested and exhausted. They were shot at. They were surprised. They were tried in ways most of us can't even uh, possibly imagine, physically and mentally. In the last physical test of the whole process, they had to navigate 40 miles of wilderness with a compass and a map carrying a 40-pound pack and other gear. It was a grueling test over mountains, dense terrain. They were given very little instruction. In the midst of it, actually, this guy, Eric Haney, he made a wrong turn and added 15 miles to the already terrible 40. Other guys gave up, but he didn't. Multiple times, even his commanding officers were saying, just quit, just give up, stop doing this, but he wouldn't do it. He said he felt like he was dragging a train behind him. His feet hurt all the way up to his knees. Eventually, his arms and his hands went numb because of the pack and because of the gun he was carrying, but he kept going hour after hour after hour after hour. At the last checkpoint, finally he arrived 55 miles later, feet blistered, his mind was unclear, he could barely understand what was going on in front of him. Suddenly he realized his instructor was saying there was more to do, further to go, and it actually was going to involve crossing a river. And Eric knew he was so exhausted that he would drown. But you know what he did? He kept going anyway. He didn't quit. Why? Because he had a desire that was greater than comfort and ease. He had a desire that was greater than getting through pain, getting pain over. He wanted to be part of this group of soldiers. He wanted to do good to his country. When it comes to us, what greater desire can we have than to be wrapped up in the unfolding purposes of God? That's what we're called to as his people. That's what we get to be part of and so much better than having to muster up our own effort or self-willpower. We persevere because God works. We endure because God works. That's what our text shows us. So three points to learn, I think, from this narrative. Point number one, verses one to seven, we expect opposition. We have to expect opposition. The gospel is not just the power of God for salvation. It's also the sword of God that divides. We're already seeing this in Acts as they're preaching the gospel. Look back at verse 1 and 2. Now, at Iconium, Paul and Barnabas entered together into the Jewish synagogue. And they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Incredibly, after being driven out of the synagogue by the Jews in the last town, Paul and Barnabas start with the synagogue in this new town. You'd think maybe maybe it's time to change strategies. Why would they do that? It's because they've not given up on the Jews yet. Yes, Paul will be the apostle to the Gentiles. That's going to happen. But till then, as they encounter places with a synagogue, that's where they start. Why? Because they appeal to the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus really is the Christ. The long-promised Messiah. And that's what they do. 
That's what they do in this synagogue. They go and preach powerfully. powerfully. Verse 1 says they, they spoke in such a way that many believed. It's a wonderful thing, but immediately they are met with opposition. Verse 2, the unbelieving Jews come in. They poison the minds of the Gentiles. They did this not just because of the message that they were proclaiming, but because of the effect this message was having on those who heard. They hated what they were seeing. Remember in in chapter 13, they were filled with jealousy. They still hear. They're hateful. Yet, look at what the apostles do. So, verse 3, so they left. No, they remained for a long time, (laughs) speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. They didn't quit. They didn't leave. God gave them grace to persevere and to stay. In fact, in the face of greater opposition, it seems like the disciples kindled a greater boldness and resolve to stay, knowing that God will build his kingdom. That's the only way they could stay. God works, and they trust in him. Listen, if, we're gonna, if we are going to live faithfully as believers, as God's people who've called us into his great mission, to witness to who he, who he is, to actually believe his word, to live like it's true, that he is Lord of all, if we're actually going to do that, we got to expect opposition. Jesus told us in Matthew 10, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. The, the gospel divides. And it divides because the gospel demands allegiance. You're either for him or you are against him. Are you surprised by the opposition in your life? Paul said later to Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Is that very encouraging? How is that supposed to encourage us? You ever gone to the doctor and you are convinced you're dying or, you know, something's wrong that's severe only to learn after tests or conversations or maybe just common sense that the problem is actually very normal Uh, something not to be concerned about. I'm asking for a friend here if you've ever done this. (laughs) It helps us to know what we ought to expect. It should. The point is expecting opposition should help us endure. We don't think something strange is happening to us when it comes. I know many of you have experienced some form of loss or persecution because of your faith, maybe the loss of friends, maybe, the, maybe a strange relationships within your family, maybe you've been looked over at work or marginalized, maybe you've been considered to be a fool or a, or a bigot. It's meant to be encouraging because God tells us this would happen. And in, in, in telling us, he gives us grace to endure. Maybe the opposition in your life isn't a sign that you're doing things wrong. Maybe the opposition in your life is fruit of the fact that you really are a follower of Christ. 
That should encourage us to persevere. It doesn't mean we go out looking for trouble. It just means let's don't be surprised when it comes. And when it comes, remember, we share in Christ's sufferings. He's with us. He knows everyone. The apostles, they stayed and they prayed. And they shared boldly until verse 5. When the opposition gets so bad, they have to flee for their lives. They're not being cowards in that moment. They're being wise. They're doing what Jesus had taught them to do in Matthew 10. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. They were preserving their witness. Though they expected persecution, being persecuted wasn't their primary goal. That's not what they were trying to go receive Some people think being persecuted is more noble or something like that. That's not their driving aim. Their driving aim was to witness to Christ in whatever way they could. And now it was clear it's time to take their witness somewhere else. So they do. Number one, expect opposition. That's first. Secondly, testify to God's goodness. Testify to God's goodness. Look back at verse 8. Now, at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. This is a wild story. It's the first moment in Acts when the apostles encounter an entirely pagan culture. Notice they don't go to a synagogue at Lystra. This is because there probably wasn't one. Instead, they're speaking openly. They're, they're telling them about the Lord. And Paul, as they do, Paul sees this crippled man listening. And he sees that this guy has faith to be healed. And so he heals him. The, the, the story is meant to and does sound a lot like when Peter heals the lame man in Acts chapter 3. Remember, he looked intently at him. This lame man who was outside of the temple. You could say the healing of the lame man outside of the temple gates represents the gospel breaking in to the Jews. And you also could say that the healing of, of this lame man at the boundaries to the pagan world is the, is, represents the breaking in of the gospel to the Gentiles. God really is opening a door of faith to the Gentiles. He's bearing witness. The Lord is bearing witness to what the apostles are preaching. That's the point of these miracles, to legitimize what they're saying is true. It's the truth. And God does this just where it is needed. But but just like in chapter 3, this moment needs some serious clarification. I mean, we have to understand the context of this, of this culture to understand why did they respond this way so quickly. About 50 years before this event, 
There was this Latin poet named Ovid who had narrated a local uh, kind of folklore legend in a work that he entitled Metamorphosis. And, and this is the story. So the gods Zeus and Hermes, the chief god Zeus and Hermes once came for a visit. They were both disguised, though, as normal men, normal human beings. And the reason they came was to test the friendliness and the hospitality of this area, of all the people there. But instead of being welcomed into people's homes, they were rejected over and over again. A thousand times uh, they were rejected by the people who obviously didn't realize who they really were. Finally, however, they were offered lodging in a tiny, meager hut, a shack, by an elderly couple. Uh, the man, whose name was Philemon, some serious biblical scholars pronounce that same name, Philemon, uh, just a joke, <laughs> not the same guy in the Bible, Philemon and his wife. And even though they were poor, they were hospitable to these two people. Well, the next day, Zeus said, let's go up to the top of the mountain. He still disguises the man. So the four of them, they go up to the top of this mountain. They're just kind of looking at, well, the two gods cause a storm to come over the valley. And it floods the valley and it kills everyone who is inhospitable to them. And instead, uh, the gods took the couple's you know, meager house and they turn it into a great temple and give them a, a roof of solid gold. The point is, so, so the people in this town believe that story to be true. And Ovid makes the point in this whole narrative that this happened in the very same valley that Paul and Barnabas are now preaching. The people would have known the story. They would have believed it really did happen, and so they did not want to mess up again. <laughs> Hence the response of the bulls and the sacrifice. The gods have come down. Let's recognize it. At first, Paul and Barnabas don't know what's going on. They don't speak their language, but then they see. Then they recognize. In verse 14, you know, th th this is no moment to take advantage of popularity. No, they tear their garments in distress. It's a sign of blasphemy. They plead with them to stop. And as they do, it's so incredible. They, they don't testify to themselves. They testify to the goodness of of God. Listen to how they preach the truth to this people. Go back to verse 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. He doesn't appeal to Old Testament scripture. He doesn't relay the whole storyline of the Bible. He doesn't even mention Jesus here. He starts with what this group of people can actually understand. There is one God, not many. There is one God, the living God. And his creation tells us so much about him. It tells us about how good he is. You know, this people, their worldview 
It was based on the idea that there were all kinds of different gods who did all kinds of different things depending on how differently they felt in the moment. It was a scary way to live. You were never sure what was going to happen. The good news that the apostles brought was freedom. Freedom from slavery to idols, these dead idols to know and love and serve the one true God. In verse 16, he says, In former times, God allowed the nations to walk in their own sinful self-determination to bring about whatever purposes God had planned. There's mystery there, but God is sovereign over it all. But those times of foolishness are now over. Now God is calling for repentance. Turn to the living God. Paul and Barnabas don't just condemn them for what they are doing. They point them to what they need most. And they do it by testifying to God's goodness. Who is like our God? Psalm 145, it says you open, praying to the Lord, you open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. Who is a God like ours? You know, our world constantly rejects him. Yet daily he pours out his goodness. He's eager to be known. He calls us to turn to him. Our, our greatest need is the same as these pagans. If you're not a Christian here, you, you must hear this. Your, your greatest need cannot be met in anything this world has to offer. Your greatest need cannot be met in anything you have to offer, anything you can try and to secure for yourself. That's good news. Because your greatest need is the same as mine, is the same as every one of us. Our greatest need is only met in the one true, living, gracious God of heaven and earth. The forgiveness of sin. The gift of everlasting life with Him. The one who's given us, who always has and will always be the one to give us life and breath and everything. I don't know what you think about God, but his word and his creation testify to just how good he is. Every day tells us, every sunrise speaks. And the pleasures he gives us in life, they're, they're meant to point us to the goodness of the giver. C.J. Mahaney has said, Behind the menu, you know, the menu you're holding at a restaurant, behind the menu, oh, see the goodness of God. <laughs> How does that help us persevere? You know, all of us are tempted to look for deliverance in something other than God at times. But his goodness shows us he alone is worthy of hoping in. Often we can be tempted just like Eve was in the garden. When things get hard, we can doubt his love for us, his provision for us. We can doubt his consideration, kind of like what Drew was talking about, his consideration of us, his remembrance of us. But we, when we see his goodness, when we really see his goodness behind even the smallest of things, builds our faith that nothing escapes his notice. 
Oh, how good. That line struck me this morning. Oh, how good you've always been to me. His goodness shows us that any other counterfeit makes promises it just can't deliver on. Let's testify to the goodness of God in our own hearts and to others. Let's find common ground when we share the gospel to people in a way that they can understand. After they deliver this message, look at verse 19. The Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, places they had just been. They chased them down. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Do you remember in 2 Corinthians when Paul recounts all the ways he's suffered and trials he's had? He says, once I was stoned. This is that. What a brutal thing. Stone. Rocks hurled at him till he was knocked unconscious. They think he's dead. They drag him out of the city. So quickly this crowd went from wanting to worship these guys to stoning one of them. Remember the same sort of thing happened when Jesus entered into Jerusalem. He was hailed as king. Hosanna to the son of David to only days later, that same crowd shouting out, crucify him. People are fickle. We are fickle. People are fickle. And left to ourselves, we, we just are. We see it, don't we? In our own hearts, we see it in mob mentality. You know what brings stability to our lives? Only the gospel. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ brings an unmoving ground on which we can stand. Only the gospel does because it removes all sense of human righteousness, human self-righteousness. It brings us to solid level ground at the foot of the cross as our only hope and all that it means for us. If God's creation testifies to his goodness, how much more does the cross of Jesus Christ, how much more the giving of his only son to reconcile sinners to himself? That's what Paul knew. That's what Paul loved. That's the only reason he was able to get back up and go right back into the city. Now, you ever read this and think, what? I could never do that. Was Paul just some superman? The Lord Jesus says not only to Paul, but to all of us, apart from me, you can do nothing. But he also says, behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Paul's strength did not come from within. He didn't muster this up. I must keep going. God enabled him. God gave him power by his spirit. The Lord wasn't done with him yet. Believe it or not, that same power is available to us. The Lord loves to be the strength of his people. So where do you need strength today? Where are you tempted to give up or give in when it comes to following the Lord? Where are you tempted to bail out? Where, where in your life do you feel like the Lord might be calling you to stand back up and go back in? Trust the Lord to empower you. Just like last week, let's pray for the Spirit's power. He will help you continue in the faith because he's always at work. We can trust him. You know, if this account shows us nothing else, it definitely shows us that the opinions of man cannot be our guide. <laughs> they are all over the place. We've got to trust the Lord. 
and live for him alone. Lastly, point three, as we persevere, let's embrace the gift of the church. Verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city, to Derby, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. I want you to see something. Do we have the uh, picture of the missionary journey, the map? Yes, okay. So do you see Derby's up there, uh, top middle? That's the furthest place they went on this missionary journey. The place where they were heading is where they began, which is over here, Antioch in Syria. They could have easily kept going east on the coast, even passed through Paul's hometown on the way back. It would have been a nice journey for them. But they don't. They turn around. And they go right back into the towns full of the people that just tried to kill them. Why? Why do this? Look at verse 22. This is why. Because they were strengthening the souls of the disciples. Encouraging them to continue in the faith. And saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. This is what Luke has been building up to. This is what he's been preparing us to receive. Expect opposition. Testify to God's goodness and God through his church. He's going to help us endure tribulation because it's coming. You know, the apostles, they don't just preach this, do they? No way. They, they model it. They are examples of it. They, they went back through each town to encourage these new churches to strengthen their faith, to encourage them, to help them endure in their experience. And Paul's literal body now, it's become a message to them. Endure tribulation. J.C. Ryle says this about suffering. Suffering is a part of the process by which the children of God are sanctified. The captain of their salvation was made perfect through sufferings, and so are they. There never yet was a great saint who had not either great afflictions or great sufferings. Philip Melanchthon said it well, where there are no cares, there will generally be no prayers. Suffering casts us to Christ, doesn't it? We have to trust the Lord that this is God's good design for us. I was preparing for this message yesterday at the building and there was a, there was a biblical counseling team meeting. Uh, happening in the conference room in the office. And as I walked out of my door, I got just a little glimpse through the door of the team meeting. And I, because I've been preparing this, I was just so grateful for this group of people. This group of people are, are they're folks who God is using to help us as a church. They, they counsel people. They are so eager to counsel and meet with and strengthen our souls and build our faith. And encourage us to endure trials, to be with us in it. Really, it's a small picture of what the whole 
church is. We counsel one another. We strengthen one another's souls and faith. Counselor Ed Welch has said that the reason why so many people now are going to secular therapists is because the church, broadly speaking, has become so shallow. The message so often heard or or told is just be happy, act like it's all good. And so suffering people go where they will be heard. This is not the message Paul and Barnabas were proclaiming (laughs) at, at all. It's the reverse. They were actually encouraging and strengthening the churches by saying, you will, in fact, you must experience tribulation. It's part of entering the kingdom. But God will be with you. Strengthening your soul. Encouraging you to trust in him. His grace will sustain you. He's at work. He's never not working for your good. That helps us persevere. May the Lord do that in our lives. The gospel is advancing. Churches are built. You see in verse 23, pastors are called to serve. Multiple pastors in every church. Isn't that amazing? All really in a relatively short time. How? How is this happening? Because this is not man's work. This is the work of God. God is building his church. God is building his kingdom. In verse 26, they they finally arrived back where they were commissioned. And the text says they had fulfilled the work. And what did they do? Did they just fall down and say, oh, I'm glad that's over? They declared, verse 27, they declared all that God had done with them. What a joy to do that as a church. We, we can persevere because the Lord is at work. Sinclair Ferguson says this, there's probably no stronger encouragement to us to persevere than the knowledge that God is persevering with us. He has promised to keep us, to never leave us. He's promised to complete his work. He's promised that nothing can take us out of his hands, so endure. Continue in the faith. Oh, Lord, help us. Continue in the faith because God is building his kingdom. When Eric Haney reached that last checkpoint after those 55 grueling miles, found out he had more to go, he started going. He took two steps in proceeding and his sergeant came out of nowhere and stopped him and said, you look really rough, Haney. Why don't you give up so that you don't really hurt yourself? And Haney replied, I can't. I can't argue with you. You know, his mind wasn't thinking right, but I just can't quit. And as he walked past the sergeant, the sergeant turned to him and said, that's it. It's over. You just passed the last test. Done. And they took him down by a warm fire and they gave him food and drink. And as you'd imagine, he was very happy in that moment. (laughs) Oh, Christian, how much more? When we finish this race and we hear the Lord say to us, well done, good and faithful. You've finished the race, you've kept the faith, not in your own strength, but he's done it. How much more will we rejoice because he's the one who's enabled and kept us in 
the faith. God is at work. So let's continue in the faith. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message given by Zach Varnell during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.